Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. We're going to continue tonight with the story of the... um, of Siddhartha's search for enlightenment and probably get to his experience of enlightenment tonight. But as a um, kind of prompt for the Sangha building exercise that we do of talking to each other and going into the breakout rooms at home on Zoom or talking to each other here in person in the room. Um, Later, when the Buddha, when he becomes the Buddha, when Siddhartha gets enlightened and becomes a Buddha, he says, when looking back on my previous unenlightened life, um, I went, uh, there's these two extremes of my life. And I had this extreme of indulgence, of indulging pleasures and satisfying cravings and, you know, um, and that it was a dead end, the, the, the dead end of uh, a sensual or material solution was a dead end. And then would send him on this search for a spiritual awakening. He said, and in my search for spiritual awakening, I also went down this other extreme of renunciation and asceticism, which we're going to talk about a bit tonight. And uh, he said also that extreme sort of religious fervor, renunciation was another dead end. It just, it didn't, uh, I was looking to this forward leading. I was looking for later what he referred to as a middle path, this path between the dead end of blind faith or the dead end of, uh, you know, kind of too much effort, extreme renunciation, or the dead end of material, sensual indulgences, thinking that if I get enough pleasure and power and money, I'll be happy. And he said, I, that was just a... Uh, didn't work. So as a prompt for uh, us talking to each other a little bit, or you talking to each other a little bit before we go, thinking about your own life and the dead ends that you've traveled. On some level, uh, we're here because it didn't, the world didn't provide the happiness we're hoping it would provide. My core sense is that actually if, um, if there was a material or sensual solution that would make us happy, then very few of us would be here. We'd still just be out chasing the sense pleasures and the, you know, looking for it in a, a worldly realm. Um, and, and maybe some of you have also come to Buddhism out of disillusionment with uh, religion or blind faith or, you know, tr- you know, the kind of false promises of a quick fix salvation from some other, uh, and that Buddhism offers this very practical, applicable way of training our minds. That's not like some magic divine intervention, but through your own efforts, training your mind to see more clearly. And we find ourselves here because We hit the dead end of a blind faith-based religion. Um, So thinking a little bit about what your, what are the dead ends you've cruised down in your life? 
I found, uh, you know, drugs to be a dead end and sex to be a dead end and money to be a dead end. And, um, you know, what, what, what's it been like for you? And uh, are you finding some balance now? Is Buddhism offering you a middle path? That feels like, yeah, there's, it's asking for some confidence and some, it's asking for a lot of effort, a lot of personal responsibility, uh, but it's giving me the tools and not just asking for blind, you know, faith. Um, so find somebody to connect with and talk a little bit about the dead ends that you've been down so far. You found your way here and at home, I'll get you in some breakout rooms. And deeply encourage you to join a breakout room, even if you don't feel like it, go for it. Welcome back, everybody. So we'll have a period of meditation, and then we'll have some discussion about um, this topic of the Siddhartha's struggle for awakening and the, the dead ends that uh, he found and, and uh, what brought him to mindfulness and uh, this middle path, this balanced approach to life and to awakening. So find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. <coughs> Take a few moments to adjust your posture. <coughs> find a way to sit that feels sustainable. Posture that you can Maintain with little movement. But a posture that is relaxed, that is balanced, that is not too tight, not too loose, not too tense, not so relaxed that we're falling over. And inwardly establishing the intention to be patient with our own minds and bodies, to be accepting of our experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, to be kind, forgiving, no matter how many times the mind wanders into the future or the past. We establish mindfulness, the practice of paying attention to the present. And as we turn our awareness towards the present, we Come aware that there's a physical body with all of the sensations. Feel your body sitting on the cushion, the chair. Come aware of the sense doors of sound. Smell, taste, seeing.
and awareness, mindfulness of our minds, the heart, the mind, emotions, memories, plans. All happening here and now, present time, non-judgmental, accepting, kind awareness towards our experience of the body and heart and mind. And then allowing the breath, sensations that the breath creates to be the focus, let the thoughts be in the background, sounds, other sensations, directing our mindfulness to the sensations of the breath. And spend a few minutes feeling the sensations of the breath, focusing there when the mind is thinking about future or past. Just acknowledge it as thinking and gently return to the breath. The Buddha's initial instruction, something like breathing in, one knows I breathe in, breathing out, one knows I'm breathing out. you're new to this kind of meditation, it can be helpful to note in as you breathe in and out as you breathe out, putting a mental label on the experience, but your primary awareness is of the sensations of the breath rather than the label.
finding a balanced effort of how often you return to the breath and special care for how you return when you find yourself lost in thinking about the future, planning, worrying, remembering, resenting. The definition of our practice is non-judgmental awareness. So just becoming aware of thinking, not judging ourselves. And then gently returning, coming back to the chosen object of awareness, the body sitting, breathing, with an attitude as, of as much friendliness and acceptance as you can in this moment.
at this point, you can choose to stay with the breath, mindfulness of breathing, ignoring the mind, breaking the habitual identification with our thoughts. And begin to expand to the whole body, opening to the sense doors and investigating, turning towards the mind, observing it rather than ignoring it. Knowing the impermanent nature of thoughts as they arise and pass, known by awareness, Mindfulness has a quality of investigation, of inquiry. What's happening right now? Am I breathing in or out? What's my body feeling? What's my mind doing? What kind of moods, attitudes, sounds? The next level is investigating the feeling of the present moment, what is perceived as pleasant in the body or the heart or mind, what is felt as painful, uncomfortable, unpleasant. What's happening and how does it feel?
and inclining the wise heart, mind, meeting the pleasant and permanent experience with non-attached appreciation. Anything pleasant that's happening, enjoy it. But let it be its nature to arise and pass, to begin and end. And inclining the heart and mind to compassion, friendliness, tolerance and mercy towards the unpleasant sensations if the body begins to ache. Soften into the pain with the intention of meeting it with compassion rather than resisting.
Where is your awareness right now? What are you paying attention to? Is it a thought, the breath, sensation? Is it a plan or a memory? Is it a pleasant story that your mind is telling you or unpleasant? You let go of needing it to be different, just a little bit, just softening, releasing, relinquishing. Stop trying to stop your mind. Let the mind think. Thoughts arising and passing. Stop trying to get rid of pain. Let the pain be present. Just soften into it.
before I get into <clears throat> the topic for tonight's talk, any questions about meditation experience, about how to work with your experience with mindfulness as we're attempting to do, bring present time non-judgmental awareness to the breath, the body, the mind, the whole shebang. Okay, go ahead. Um, I guess, I don't know why all of a sudden it sort of struck me to ask this question. When you are saying to be compassionate, to the pain, well, you know, the, the sensation, I mean, my foot fell asleep, right? So are you suggesting that I don't, you know, basically suffer over it, that I'm just observing like, oh, there's a tingle in my toe, it starts here and then it moves up my ankle rather than motherfucking foot, what the hell, right? Is that, you know, like to just observe the sensation is, being compassionate basically to myself, not so much suffering over it, right? Yeah, I think it's observe, I, it's observe with warmth. You know, ultimately the goal is to, you know, I, you've probably heard me say before that I feel like there's a um, kind of scale or like a, um, you know, a meter between aversion, fuck this pain in my foot, um, to compassion and compassion, feels like a friendliness and a warmth and a caring um, tenderness towards your pain, which isn't fuck this, but it's I care about this discomfort. Um, but between I hate you and I care about you is um, you know a whole process of I hate you, but I can tolerate you and just observe it. I can observe the aversion to the pain without getting into the resentment or the, you know, or, or I can, um, I can observe it with uh, a little bit less uh, aversion and just awareness of, oh, this is quite uncomfortable. And then somewhere in the middle is that part, we start to wake up to when we meet our pain with resistance, we make it worse. The, the fuck this pain creates this level of suffering on top of, now we have the pain and the resistance, which creates the suffering, the dukkha, right? And so then we get to a place where it's like, well, I don't quite have compassion yet. I'm not really an I care yet, but I'm in enough tolerance and acceptance that it's like a merciful, I'm not making it worse. I'm not really, I don't have a soothing, loving friendliness to it yet, but I can just observe it without hating it, without making it worse. And then it becomes more and more, um, like, I don't know what the right word is, warmth. You know, like, like aversion feels cold and compassion feels warm. Like there's a warm, uh, friendly tendency rather than a kind of hard, cold, I'm in pain and I'm just gonna bear it. Right. Um, I mean, I and I don't see myself ever like, you know, wishing for this, you know, like welcoming <laughs> my foot to fall asleep all the time. I don't think I'm gonna like say, oh, yay, come on in and have some tea, right? I'm not gonna get there. You might. 
I'll let you know. <laughs> I will let you know. That's fucking funny, huh? You might, you might get to the place um, for years of your practice where you're like, oh, it's just pain and cool, an opportunity to practice compassion. And I'm, and I'm actually, you'll get good at it. You'll be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good at being in pain because I've been sitting here turning towards my foot falling asleep or my aching back for all of these, you know, hundreds of hours that we accumulate on the cushion. And then when it happens at some point, it won't be that big of a deal. It's like, oh, just sensation and friendly towards that sensation and, and even welcoming it. Like, like you said, inviting it in for tea, that image uh, is a good one. Um, you maybe have heard me say that there's a, a Buddhist saying, like almost a, a prayer that says, may I be met with the appropriate difficulties today, the appropriate discomforts and, um, you know, challenges and pain in the asses today, so that I have the opportunity to meet it with compassion, because I'm committed to becoming more and more compassionate. And if nothing is difficult, no opportunity for compassion. If you have no pain, no need for compassion, but because pain is inevitable and unavoidable, you can welcome it as, oh, this is an opportunity to develop the skill that I so badly know I need to and am committed to developing, which is the skill of meeting it with mercy and compassion. Okay. I like looking at it as an opportunity because I mean, at the very least I'm alive as long as my foot is tingling, right? That's right. I know <clears throat> I'm alive because it hurts. <laughs> Thank you. Mm -hmm. Welcome. I have a question. One, one question in the room and then I'll come to you. I didn't see the, hey, Dave, just give me one moment, please. Um, you know, recently I've been having uh, the experience of coming out of uh, sitting or particularly mindfulness meditation and just feeling like the result has become, uh, you know, sort of mundane and feeling like I should be able to bring back some sense of like beginner's mind to you know, my practice in general, but kind of at a loss in how to actually kind of do that. Um, I don't know if you have any recommendations or insights about that. Okay. Could you hear the question at home or should I repeat it? Repeat it. Um, how long have you been meditating? Uh, I mean, consistently, like a consistent practice for probably about half a year. Okay. So he's saying that, you know, about six months into a consistent meditation practice, um, feeling like the results feel a little mundane, like not quite as interesting and insightful as they are in the beginning. Like you, in the beginning of meditation, you sit down like, whoa, this is fucking miraculous. I'm breathing and I'm paying attention to my breath and I'm, you know, you're getting all of these new. And then after a while, you're like, oh no, I do this every day and I've been doing it every day for six months and same old shit. I breathe in, I breathe out and my mind wanders and I come back to the breath and my knee hurts and I don't like it. And I come back to the breath and, you know, so it feels like where's the, uh, and then the question was, um, do I have any suggestions around how to bring the beginner's mind or curiosity or investing, you know, something to make it more, you know, useful or interesting or insightful or forward leading. That's the way I heard the question. So it's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have, uh, you know, I'd, we'd have to talk a little bit more about where you're placing your attention, how much you're focusing just on the breath, how much you're opening to the second foundation. Are you opening to that pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Yeah, and, and I think like 
recently, like I have been putting a lot of effort towards just trying to observe the mind too with what, what it does. Yeah. Um, so that, that has been kind of a primary area of focus. For me. So third foundation, what's my mind doing, investigating that. And then are, are you also applying second foundation of like, what's my mind doing and how do these thoughts feel? Is this a pleasant thought or an unpleasant thought? So there, and this is, it's an important question because part of it is, am I applying the techniques correctly? That's one of the usefulness of having the conversation of talking it through with somebody who knows the technique. Am I trying to do it correctly? And then if the answer is yes, which on a surface level, it sounds like the answer is yes. then you just keep going. Then it's just kind of perseverance. And even if it feels like, I'm not sure how much insight I'm getting, it happens so incrementally. You know, I use that image of the needle on the, um, you know, going from empty to full, empty, you know, not much wisdom to, but it moves so incrementally that you don't really notice it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard me say this yet and you might not like it, but um the Dalai Lama one time was asked, well, how long does it take? And he said, you know, just practice, deeply commit to your Buddhist practice and uh, check in on your progress once every decade or so. <laughs> you know, so like in the first six months, maybe sometimes you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm making some progress. And then it feels like, oh, I've kind of plateaued. And then two years later, oh, it feels a little bit different than it did, you know, 18 months ago. Five years in, it feels actually I, I'm much more at ease. Um, 10 years in, I have more ability to concentrate. I have more, um, but that this is a process that takes years and that you don't want it too quickly. You've planted the seed, you're doing the technique correctly. And so then you just keep doing the technique. There is something, how long are you sitting? Uh, typically like 25 to 30 minutes. Right. So that might be the piece. Go to 40 minutes go to 45 minutes. If it feels like there's a bit of a plateau, sometimes like, well, what if I sit longer? Because you can kind of get to that. I know for my first couple of years of sitting, I would sit for 20 minutes. And 20 minutes just feels like this, you're just arriving and then you're done. But somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes and your body gets more uncomfortable and your mind, you know, goes through the different waves and cycles of like, oh, I'm present or I'm totally thinking about something else. So maybe that's a piece for you of saying like, well, I'm committed to it. Maybe you should push it from 30 to 45 minutes. And what happens if you sit for 45 minutes every day, you might find, oh, I'm, I'm seeing a bit more clearly. But even that, even if you sit for two hours a day, it's still going to take months and years to fully integrate and be able to uh, respond wisely. There's just no shortcut. It's long-term mind training. Uh, you know, the story I'm going to tell tonight of, is of the Buddha's seven years. And I started it, you know, seven years of intensive daily all in, you know, not like us where we're like working and we like meditate for 30 minutes, like 24 seven meditation for seven years was his experience that led him to the full insights. So for us, how many half hours is it going to take to equal the seven years? <laughs> how many seven day retreats? How many? It takes some time. And, you know, having said that, I do believe that it's very much a gradual process of awakening that we're in, um, that we can't really rush it, but that 
a 45 minute a day, a regular retreat or two a year, coming, being part of Sangha, all of the things that we're doing um, will gradually bring us to more and more wisdom. And that each one of us has a different level of, for lack of a better way to explain it, karma that we're coming in with, trauma that we're coming in with, confusion that we're coming in with, natural wisdom that we're coming in with. And so there's not a one model fits all, right? Uh, some of you will progress much more quickly than I did, uh, right? And some of you are gonna be way slower. <laughs> it depends on your level of commitment and also what you're working through internally. Um, stuff like, you know, how, what level of ADD, ADHD are you dealing with? How much anxiety and depression do you deal with? That stuff all is gonna factor into the progress towards insight that we experience. Um, so my, you know, my main suggestion is sit a little bit longer because it sounds like you're applying the technique in a good way. Thank you. Yeah. Have you been on retreat yet? No, the first one I went on in a long time was just the one day. On the, the, the day. So my, my experience is that when you want to deepen your practice, go sit for a week. Go on a retreat, you know, come with us in May or in October. Um, this year we'll have, against the stream, we'll have two retreats. And then that will really help you kind of like, okay, when you're doing all day practice, you, you reach a different depth of concentration and mindfulness. Welcome. Okay, so um, we left off last week talking about Siddhartha's early life, birth, um, childhood, and then um, leaving home. And the core of that first chapter of the story of, of uh, his life is the disillusionment with um, sense pleasures and uh, privilege and power. He said, I have it all and it's not working. And so he went out to seek a spiritual solution. He said, there's no, I've got the material world. I got it all. Material doesn't work. Maybe there's a spiritual solution, but then kept running into these dead ends with the spiritual teachers that he met and the traditions that he studied in felt like he wasn't being taught techniques that were uh, applicable, that were, um, working in a way that he was seeking something that he could live. He said, I was learning these meditations that got me high. And some people are meditating to get high, right? And you can kind of like all over, you know, you, you can go to the sound bath to get a, a good meditation buzz, right? And the Buddha was just like, I'm not looking for a meditation sound bath buzz. I'm looking for freedom. I'm not looking for an altered state. I'm looking to alter the traits of my mind where I can be more compassionate and more non-attached and so that I can eliminate these levels of unnecessary suffering that a lot of concentration-based meditations just don't do for you. They don't uproot clinging. They don't uproot uh, aversion or the self-centeredness that causes all of our suffering. So he had this uh, bad idea. He thought like, okay, I'm, material solution doesn't work and 
these meditation techniques that I'm learning are too temporary. And I see the source. It feels like he had this awareness. The source of suffering is craving, like the second noble truth, like he already knew it. It's this repetitive craving for pleasure, for comfort. That's why we're unhappy. That's why we're suffering. And it seems to be like it's the body. This body always wants to be comfortable. This body, right? Like we see it in sitting meditation. Your body's not very good at being uncomfortable. And had this, what I, you know, sort of bad idea of like, what if I just totally defy all of the natural desires of this human body? And there was a tradition in his time and continues to be a tradition in India, this philosophy, this idea of self-mortification, of uh, self-denial, of if your body is the source of you know, suffering and the identification with this body's craving for pleasure, just defy it. Don't satisfy any of your desires um, to the point where he lived for years naked in the woods, fasting, doing all of these incredibly austere practices. Um, there's a quote here from the suttas, and he's, he's saying, uh, this is attributed to, uh, to him, to his words. He said, I thought, suppose I entirely cut off food. And then he said, these uh, deities came to me and said, good sir, do not entirely cut off food. If you do so, uh, we shall inject divine food into your pores and you will live on that. And he thought, if I came, claim to be completely fasting and these deities inject divine food into my pores and I live on that, then I shall be lying. And he dismissed them saying, there is no need. And he, and he thought, he said, I thought, suppose I take very little food, say a handful each time, whether it is bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup. And then I did so. And I did so and my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. My limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems because of eating so little. My backside became like a camel's hoof. Get the image? My ass became like a camel's hoof. The projections of my spine stood forth like corded beads. My ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. The gleam of my eyes sunk far down into their sockets and they looked like a gleam of water sunk far, far down into a deep well. My scalp shriveled and withered as a green gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. He says, if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone too. So, you know, like this image uh, on this, t-shirt of the emaciated Buddha is like a artistic, you know, of what he's saying. This is what my body looked like. I was skin and bones and barely surviving. I could touch my spine because he'd been going too far towards the renunciation. And he goes on to say, if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin for my belly skin cleaved to my black backbone. 
If I made water or evacuated my bowels, I fell over on my face. If I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its roots, fell away from my body as I rubbed because of eating so little. So, you know, he's, he's like, oh shit, I went a little too far. <laughs> went a little too far with this renunciation business. And there was this quality of like, even though I've totally defied my body and not fed it and it hasn't worked. It's not, I'm not happy all of a sudden. It's not, I still want pleasure. I still have aversion to pain. I'm still taking this all uh, personal on some level. I have this ability to not satisfy desire, but it's not leading to the liberation that I'm seeking. And he spent these years with these other ascetics. Um, there was five of them. And they were hanging out in the woods and not eating and, you know, barely eating a, a spoonful of pea soup or whatever he said. And, but they really felt righteous, like, you know, and really judgmental of people who ate food. <laughs> of like, this is the highest spiritual practice, the self-mortification. He says, we, you know, I'd stand up for months without taking a seat or I'd lay down. I don't know if you've seen like, this continues in India, the, the tradition of sadhus in Hinduism, where it's this self-mortification. You'll, you'll see them laying on, uh, you know, like beds of nails. And it's this kind of like, look at all the pain that I can take. And there's genital torture and um, I remember the first time I went to India and Nepal and there was these sadhus and they were like, hey, you know, for five bucks, you will like hang these rocks off of our balls. And it was like their like trick for the tourists of like, you know, we'll tie this rope on our nuts and we'll hang this, you know, boulder from our nuts because like we're celibate and, you know, sex is suffering and um and so, you know, the, the Buddha as, as a sadhu, as an ascetic, as a self-mortification. And just seeing like it doesn't, this doesn't lead to the kind of freedom that I'm seeking. And at some point, you know, he's like seven years into this practice and learned all the concentration, experienced those bliss states and totally disillusioned with the sensual material, now becomes totally disillusioned with this dead end of uh, asceticism and torturing the body. And the thought occurs to him, um, what if I find some balance? Um, concentration by itself doesn't work, but what if I just bring mindfulness to the arising and passing, the impermanent nature of desires, the impermanent nature of pleasure, the impermanent nature of pain. And he says, in order to do this, I think I need to get some, a little bit more meat on my bones. I need to eat some food. And um, there's a young woman who's, I think, um, you know, carrying yogurt or something like that from village to village near the woods where they're staying. And uh, approaches her or she approaches him and offers him some curd, some dairy. Then he accepts it. And he decides, I'm going to start uh, 
taking in some sustenance and developing this, this ideas that he had about mindfulness. And his friends immediately rejected him. His friends were like, you have totally sold out. You are eating yogurt. You are a fucking sellout. You have, you've, you've lost the real spiritual path and you are indulging in sense pleasures and you've reverted to the luxury of yogurt. And, um, and you, you know, you're not part of us anymore. And they rejected him and they walked away. And so he stayed alone for some, I believe it's weeks, the way that the story is told. And this is in Gaia, uh, which becomes Bodh Gaia. And he finds this big uh, tree that he's hanging out under. Um, and he's contemplating the nature of the causes of suffering. And he's all that he's learned and how he's learned to concentrate and how he's started to see that mindfulness can make room for everything rather than concentrating it away rather than denying, turning towards and observing non, you know, and he comes to what we're practicing here, non-judgmental present time awareness of the impermanent, impersonal and unsatisfactory nature of all thought, of all sensation, of all sense impressions. And so get this image of, you know, he's, emaciated but he's eating and he's starting to get a little bit more health in his body and he's uh, alternating between sitting there contemplating and meditation and doing some walking meditation walking back and forth and contemplating and he's, he's getting closer and closer uh, to what he's been seeking his whole life and he spends some some weeks in retreat and and then he finally, he kind of gets a little bit frustrated. He's like, I'm so close, but I'm just missing something. I'm not quite sure what it is. And he makes this vow. He says, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to take this seat under this tree. And, um, and I'm just going to keep sitting here until I see clearly, because I can just tell I'm on the verge of, of a breakthrough. And he starts to meditate and, you know, he does the four foundations of mindfulness. He starts with mindfulness of his breath and breathing in, knows he's breathing in, breathing out, knows he's breathing out. He's doing vipassana, this technique that we're doing. He brings the awareness to his whole body, scans from head to toe, feels all the sensations and starts to acknowledge some sensations are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral, but they're all impermanent. And he opens up to his mind rather than ignoring and concentrating away the mind, just observes it and sees, oh, all these thoughts are just arising and passing and some thoughts are volitional, some were thinking, some are non-volitional, they're just the mind thinking all by itself. And every thought has this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And he starts to wake up and he sees like, when I pay attention in this way, I see these hindrances. I see that the mind produces craving for pleasure, aversion to pain, restlessness, uh, sloth and torpor. And I can just be mindful of it rather than trying to get rid of the craving. I can just observe craving arising and passing. 
Rather than trying to get rid of the restlessness, I can just observe, be with, this is what restlessness feels in my body. He says, and then, you know, doubt came and I just observed doubt. So, but also the more I brought this kind of mindfulness, present time awareness, I also saw these awakening factors. I saw that my mind became tranquil, that I experienced equanimity. I experienced um, kindness, loving kindness, compassion. I experienced uh, rapture, these states of, of joy, this sensual, emotional, psychological joy that had no source the spiritual joy that was just coming from my meditation and not from the seclusion of concentration, not the bliss of ignoring everything, but in conjunction, mindful, aware of the whole body, aware of, you know, uh, the hindrances are over here, but there's also this joy that is present. So he said, I sat there and I did these four foundations of mindfulness and then I was attacked. He said, my mind attacked me. And he uses this image of Mara. Uh, he says, Mara attacked me. And Mara is the, you know, deity, the demon of, uh, you know, that wants us to suffer. It's the, well, my sense is it's the kind of ego mind, the self-centered, fear-based part of us that's uh, invested in us staying stuck. He said, I was attacked. Mara attacked with lust. Mara attacked with resentment. Mara attacked with insecurity. And I think that this is really, I, I like it. I think it's very important. I really feel like it humanizes him on the verge of awakening as he's observing his mind. He's seeing that his mind is lusting. And that his mind says, you know, this whole meditation business, it's overrated. You'd be way happier if you were getting laid. <laughs> and how often does your mind say that and then you think well i'm not very spiritual because i'm sitting here meditating thinking about sex or resentments are coming up and kind of attacked with anger with you know indignation with uh enmity whatever it is and Again, I feel like it's so good that it normalizes like, yeah, that's what happens when you pay attention to your mind. You see lustful thoughts, you see angry thoughts, Mara attacks. He said, before this, I'd taken it quite personally. And I had thought in some ways that if I meditated enough or I practiced enough austerities, I'd be able to get rid of all of those thoughts. I'd be able to perfect my mind. I'd be able to completely get rid of this stuff. But part of what mindfulness showed him and his breakthrough awakening is that it's not about getting rid of it. It's about accepting it. It's about learning that it's not so personal. It's not your fault. It's just what the human mind does. It lusts, it judges, it rages, it fears, it has its emotions. So, but mindfulness allowed me to see it, see those thoughts. And he said, I saw it, saw it as Mara and I could meet the anger with forgiveness, with compassion. I could meet the lust with non-attachment, with renunciation. Even though my mind is saying that, I know my mind is lying, that actually there is not a sensual solution. That, that temporary sense pleasure of sex is not the solution. 
Mara's final attack and uh, weapon and most debilitating is uh, the thought of unworthiness, of self uh, unworthiness, self doubt. He said, I'm sitting there and I've kind of met with compassion. I've met it with non-attachment and renunciation. And then my mind says to me, Mara attacks with, who do you think you are? Why do you think you're worthy of this liberation? Nobody's liberated. Everyone's suffering. Why are you going to, why do you think you're so special that you should be happy? You should be at ease. You should be liberated in this world where suffering is normal. Why don't you just give up your mind kind of saying like, just give up his mind attacking. And again, I think that it's quite um, normalizing and inspiring for us to, to recognize that here he is on the verge of enlightenment and his mind is saying to him, what your mind says to you sometimes, who do you think you are? Having a thought or a feeling of unworthiness, of insecurity. But he's able, because of his practice, his mindfulness, his awareness to say, this is not who I am. These are just thoughts. This is not true. And rather than taking it personal and thinking I shouldn't have these thoughts and sees the impermanent nature, this is just a thought arising and passing. This is not true. This is an unwholesome Mara thought. And that's his awakening. He's a liberated being. And that's what separates you know, the Buddha from us is because we sit here and we watch our minds and we take most of it personally. We think, oh, that's me. I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm angry. I'm lustful. I'm judgmental. I'm whatever it is. And his shift was like, this is not who I am. This is just what the mind is doing. And maybe you've had moments, hopefully you've had moments in your meditation where you watch the afflictive emotion arise and sustain and pass. And the more we can do that without hooking into it, without identifying with it as self, the more we are awake or seeing clearly, this is just a difficult emotion arising and passing. Now, a little side note about Mara, most of you are aware of this. And it seems like the Buddha actually thought he was a little bit mistaken there where he thought like, okay, I've really kicked Mara's ass. Um, I can't find the quote right there, but where he says, you know, Mara, I've seen through you that part of your own mind. And, you know, I've, I've shattered my belief in this part of my mind. And in, in one of the things, I think he actually says, and I vanquish you. I vanquish this ignorance from this ignorance of identification and doubt. And I, but Mara actually doesn't go away. He battles with Mara under the Bodhi tree. He gains his enlightenment. But then the very next day, Mara comes back. And throughout his life, Mara keeps returning. That mind state keeps returning. But now, rather than taking it personal and suffering about it, he says, I see you, Mara. I'm being mindful. I'm paying attention. 
This is just lust. This is just fear. This is just doubt. It's not self. It's not who I am. These are just thoughts, impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory emotions passing through consciousness. I see you. I'm awake. I'm paying attention. All the way to his deathbed, Mara keeps returning. I think it's like over 40 something times in the scriptures and the suttas of Buddhism where Mara comes back, Mara comes back, Mara comes back, and he keeps fucking with the Buddha. But it's not an external deity. It's just his mind, as far as I'm concerned. And I have a little bit of a Western psychological perspective on this. Some Buddhists actually believe that Mara is like the devil, like a demon that's like fucking with Siddhartha, this external bad deity. I don't buy it. I think that the Buddha was quite clear that this is just part of our mind, that we have to learn to live with, that we have to learn to make friends with, and that this idea that we're going to get rid of afflictive emotions forever, no matter how good you are at meditation, is a delusional idea. That we have to learn to live with the nervous system that we're born into, the conditioned mind that craves pleasure and hates pain, and you have to learn to live with it. So now Siddhartha is the Buddha. And um, next week, we'll talk about what he does after his awakening. And, um, you know, eventually forms the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Paths and creates this cult of Buddhism. And uh, here we are 2,600 years ago, later, continuing to try to apply the teachings and the ways that he formulated it. Uh, into our own hearts and minds. So I'll end there for tonight with a five minutes or so for any questions about this part of the story or anything else you want to talk about. Nothing. <laughs> Please. Um, I'm back to um, If this Mara character exists to some Buddhists who think that it's real and it's external, yeah. yeah, then do they believe in like some kind of opposite higher power that is like more like God? And do they think the Buddha, you know, believed in that? Well, there, you know, that first part where, uh, where I started reading and he said, um, you know, I thought that I would not eat any food and that these uh, um, uh, devas, these deities came to me and said, well, if you do that, we'll inject you with divine nectar so that you won't be able to die. So in the suttas, in Theravadan Buddhism suttas, there are angels and demons. And so like traditional Buddhists believe that there's these unseen deities and some of them are good and they're like, they got your back and they're higher powers and they got your back. And some of them are 
Maras and kind of, you know, trying to cause you harm and keep you in suffering. So yes, Buddhists believe in that stuff. You can ask for help, right? You can ask them for help with your practice. Yes. Now there is a, um, I'm totally skeptical of it, obviously. Um, I think that this is religious, uh, you know, exaggeration and analogy for mind states, not uh, external deities. Personally, I think that they're just sort of assigning these meanings to these things, and that it's really talking about the human uh, psyche and that the the wise thoughts that arise and the unwise thoughts that arise. Notion of asking for help. Well, I mean, I'm interested in that and how that fits in the religion. That's why I'm curious about this. The good. There is is a notion of asking for help and for protection and and all of that. But also the Buddha is referred to as, after his awakening, the teacher of gods and humans. Because there are these gods in, in the Buddhist cosmology, but the gods are also in craving and aversion, and they're not totally wise. Uh, So in the whole Buddhist cosmology, there's a human realm, there's an animal realm, there's God realm, jealous God realm, heaven realms. All of them are, and then uh, hungry ghost realm and hell realms. So there's all of these realms, but all of these realms in Buddhism are subject to craving for pleasure, aversion to pain and self-centeredness, greed, hatred, delusion. So even the gods are self-centered and fueled by craving and aversion. So part of how it's portrayed is that the Buddha can teach the gods how to not suffer. So even if you think about your, our Western Judeo-Christian monotheistic God of Abraham, dude is unhappy wrathful and jealous and fucking smiting people left and right. And so there's this perspective of like, let me teach you about compassion. Let me teach you about non-attachment and stop smiting people all of the time. You know, that's, you know, like that kind of these gods that are like pissed, jealous, wrathful. And then, you know, there's, you know, of course, we like to say, well, no, God is love. And, you know, it's only, only attributed the, the good, positive human emotions to the higher power. Um, so there is in some traditional Buddhist systems, a petitioning of the, of the deities and the devas, but there's also this core, they can't do that much for you. You got to do all of the work yourself. The deities can't meditate for you. You have to meditate. The deities can't um, alleviate your suffering. You got to do the work to alleviate your own suffering. And then, of course, as Buddhism gets more and more developed, us humans start teaching the Buddha, like treating the Buddha like a deity. We start bowing to the statues and offering the incense and the flowers and the become devotional and as though the statues are these sacred images that will somehow bestow blessings on us or like that it's it's thought to be like bad karma to point your feet at a Buddha statue. And it's just like, that makes no sense at all. It's a statue. <laughs> How could it be bad karma to point my feet at a statue? But because, you know, 
Buddhism becomes so dogmatic and religious. Um, and how could offering incense to a piece of metal somehow give me grace or blessings or, uh, you know, somehow be purifying of my karma? Doesn't fit with the Buddha's teachings as much as taking total personal responsibility for our actions. We'll end there tonight, total personal responsibility for our actions. And a um, couple of announcements. First of all, class done by donation against the stream, supported by the generosity, the voluntary contributions of those of you who uh, attend and, and become part of the community. Um, our rent is $3,500 a month. Um, just to have the, you know, it would actually more than that, just to keep the lights on with electricity and, um, and our expenses. So please be as generous as you can. We obviously, I don't charge for the Zoom classes or for people to come in. I want to keep against the stream open to all who wish to attend, regardless of ability to donate or pay. But um, the way this thing has worked for the last 2,600 years is voluntary contributions. So please participate in that, uh, whatever level you feel comfortable with. The suggested donation is $15 to $20 for a drop-in class. Um, but those who have more, please be generous, give more. Those who have less, know that you're welcome here and give whatever feels appropriate to you. Um, there's a link um, in the um, bio here or the chat um, about becoming a recurring monthly donor. Um, so if you're not doing that and you would like to, please consider becoming a monthly donor to Against the Stream, where you just say, I'm going to give 50 or or $100 every month just to support the organization and make sure that we continue to have our meditation center and this is available. So, and thank you to everyone for your generosity to support this. Memorial Day retreat is open for registration, three-day retreat at the end of May over Memorial Day weekend out in Joshua Tree. You can register, come sit with us for three days, silent meditation retreat, and then we'll have another seven-day retreat, and I believe it's October 9th through 16th. Um, that'll be in Big Bear, um, so we're trying a new retreat center in the fall this year. I think that's all the announcements I got for now. May each one of us avoid the dead ends of asceticism or worldly indulgence. When we find the middle path, when we train our minds thoroughly to see through Mara's lies, and may we awaken in this lifetime. And may our awakening be an offering outward in all directions to all beings everywhere. May we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you and uh, see you next week for the turning of the wheel teaching. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.